You're listening to the Christian Humanist Radio Network, christianhumanist.org. there everybody this is danny anderson thanking you for listening to another episode of the sectarian review podcast um as always i am recording from mount aloysius college in crescent pennsylvania and tonight i'm recording here um with one of my favorite people uh c derek varn back on the show again how's it going derek I'm okay. I'm in my bunker. <laughs> yes, we're all bunkered. That's for sure. Um, yeah, Derek's a, a frequent guest, and a, a fan favorite, and, and a personal favorite of mine. I love talking to Derek. Um, Derek, you do so much political stuff, um, both like in social media and in the other podcast realm. Um, one of the things I love to have you come on the show is to talk about art and, uh, because you are, you know, a poet and, and, uh, uh, an aesthete <laughs> in your own right. And so, uh, to, one of our traditions is talking about Tarkovsky movies. And, uh, this is like the fourth one that we're going to hit to tonight. It's a nostalgia. Uh, we're going to talk about Andre Tarkovsky's 1983 Italian language, uh, Russian, Italy uh, combination yeah, it's of a Soviet Italian co-production co-production. And so it's uh, it's quite different, um, more dreamlike than most um, movies you'll ever see. But Derek, um, how are you doing before we get into the business here? Yeah, I am uh, doing OK. I have I am. Uh, I've taken a mild hiatus from um, from some of my political commentary and um, some of that's for family issues. Um, uh, some of that is. Uh, I feel like I need to do more research and um, get stuff out. Um, I've, I've also been revitalizing um, the former people podcast. So people occasionally hear me talk about art films, Birdman, Tarkovsky, you know, the, the big pretentious variety. <laughs> um, and, uh, I love late Tarkovsky movies. I think they're actually underwatched. One because uh, because of weirdnesses with their ownership, mm. um, they are not generally procured by Criterion. There is his last film, Mirror, which is a which is amazing. Is 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 getting a new release soon? That's supposed to reconcile the two floating editions um, that are currently out there. Um, unfortunately, this film um, has. I had. To, I bought the DVD for it. I've seen it before, but um, it it is still sort of in a weird limbo land where you know it's floating on various streaming services from month to month. Um, since Criterion doesn't have it, it's all over the place. Um, it's it's been released by some European art house that has like a bare bones DVD um, uh, released in in the states, and it needs it needs a new release. And I'm, frankly, I think even though the version I had looked pretty good, it probably should be properly restored. 
Um, yeah, especially this one has a very muted, I mean, there are black and white sequences, of course. Um, you were expecting that from Tarkovsky at this point. I'm switching back between black and white and color, but the color is very kind of muted, um, in this movie. And that there, are, I, do, I do believe you're right. I think that a, a remastered, um, edition of it would actually make that, um, color palette a little bit more. Uh, I know it's intentionally muted, but I think it's sometimes difficult to see even in some cases. And so I, I bought it on Vudu, which I think is Walmart's streaming service, but um, like you can't really get it on Amazon. There's like, it's got very kind of weird. It, it is weird to track down. I was able to buy it for like 10 bucks on Vudu. And so I bought it there and, and have been watching it there over the last Yeah, I ordered it for $20 on a Blu-ray and the Blu-ray is better than the, than the other prints, but the prints I've seen are not much better than the free Mossbone print that's that's available on YouTube. Yeah, like it's um, the colors need to be restored. Uh, the blue way looks pretty decent, but and, and that's a shame because this movie is even with the muted colors in in real life, this movie actually dramatically depends on its visual elements. And the same is true for the multiple prints of Mirror. Um, because late Tarkovsky is more poetic and less narrative, and while Stalker gets away with it because it's Stalker and there's the pretense of an alien plot, um, the last movies, of which this is one of, Tarkovsky isn't even pretending anymore, so he's not, he's not tying his images down to a conventional historical narrative like in Ivan's childhood or in... And Rubliev, nor is he using the weak conceit of tying it to a um, historical science fiction novel <laughs> um, like he does in Solaris and Stalker. Um, and this is one of his, you know, later movies. He, you know, he and his uh, his I like to think of him um, as his doppelganger Bergman because they were each other's favorite filmmakers, mm. and it, it always amused me because Bergman very much does not believe in God. He might believe in the devil, and he definitely believes in death. And um, I don't know if Tarkovsky believes in the devil. If he does believe in the devil, he believes the devil does God's work. But he definitely believes in God. And um, in fact, that's all he's really obsessed with. Yeah. Well, God's voice actually shows up in this movie in, in a dream sequence, which is right. kind of shocking, actually. <laughs> To, to, it sort of comes out of nowhere. Um, and that is one thing. If you're going to watch this movie, you haven't watched it. Um, pause the podcast and, and spend a couple hours watching this movie. It's uh, very dreamlike. Um, it's very um, poetic. The images are poetic, right? It isn't just sort of the, the dialogue. There's very little dialogue. There's very little plot, really. And um, it's mostly... A guy wandering around, uh, being in two places at once, basically in his imagination and in his physical life, and uh, and there's all this uh, strange kind of religious imagery that comes in and out of it. Um, and so watch the movie, enjoy it, and then there's uh, also a lot of meta commentary about art. Yeah, and it's one of these movies where there is a plot, but most of the plot happens off screen. Mm. Um. Uh, but yes, it's you have a you, you basically have a Russian poet uh, who is traveling around Italy, um, following the footsteps of a Russian composer who had fled from Tsarist Russia in the 1870s, 1880s, um, 
having conversations with a translator that it takes forever for you to figure out that that's his translator. Yes. Um, yeah, also, I had to yes. watch it. You, yeah, Eugenia. I had to watch it twice to realize that his Italian really isn't good. <laughs> um, and because uh, I, I was really the second time I I I paid it, I watched it. I think I watched it. This may be the third or fourth time I've seen this movie, but the la this time I watched it twice, prepping for this. And the first time I tried to, you know, I was really focused on on picking up all the clues from the dialogue and reading all the subtitles. The second time I actually tried to, because poetry is so important and the inability to translate is a major theme in what's going on. Um, I literally I tried to listen to the dialogue, um, in the Italian. Mm. One, because I don't speak Italian, but I know enough Romance languages that I can mostly figure it out. And two, I realized that while some of the dialogue is in Russian and the footnote and the things don't denote it, mm -hmm. most of it is in Italian, but the Russian is speaking very bad Italian. Yeah. Or he's responding to someone speaking to him in Italian and Russian. And again, like the subtitles actually don't denote this. You have to pay attention to catch it. Yeah. Um, yeah, and you, it's 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 audible. The Russian accent in Italian is audible, like it, right. to even an English speaker. Yeah, it's very interesting. Like like when he's speaking Italian, you're like, oh, your Italian isn't that bad, but then you're like, but you sound like you're speaking <laughs> like I don't know, like Romanian or something, because it sounds like some some Italian in in Slavic mouth, and I don't understand what you're saying, and yet the other people are speaking Italian in a way that like even I as a person who just speaks Spanish can kind of figure out. Um, yeah, I, so, I, I took a semester of Italian in college and not enough to, to get me through this, but yeah. Um, and yeah, and so this is, is very difficult. It's almost an impossible task to orderly have a conversation about a Tarkovsky film, especially this one. It's very dreamlike and it's very um, poetic and it's very um, uh, shifty. And so it's, uh, I expect our conversation will probably go there. Do let me do like, let's, let's solidify what kind of story there is. You said um, the uh, poet's name is Gorkachev, Andrei Gorkachev, who is uh, a apparently famous Russian poet. He's on a tour of Italy with this beautiful, um, Italian translator who's sort of in love with him, apparently, um, Eugenia. And he's writing a biography of a Russian composer from Tsarist Russia, as you said, um, Sosnovsky, I believe. Um, yep. at some point they're reading, um, uh, Arseny Tarkovsky poetry, who is the right? That's Tarkovsky's <laughs> real father, who yes. really was a poet, and it really is his poetry. Yes, I, I what um, what your listeners cannot see this, but when you got up, I actually went because my friend Shallon um, gave me um, the, uh, an English translation of Arseny Tarkovsky's work recently because it's apparently. Really, I've, I've read it and it's really good, but those are the poems. Yeah. Um, now, it's interesting listening to Russian poems and Italian that I have the English of, <laughs> but it's... Uh, well, that fits right with the themes of this movie, though, to be honest with you. This sort of, right. uh, uh, it's hard to nail down because of that. And the untranslatability, as you say, is a theme. We'll get to the themes in a minute. Along the way, he meets uh, another holy fool, I would classify uh, Domenico as uh, that figure that we often see show up in Tarkovsky films, um, starting with Andrei Rublev and our conversation about that. And the Holy Fool ends up 
giving a political speech in Rome and immolating himself <laughs> on a sta- on a statue of uh, Marcus Aurelius, I think. Um, yeah, it's a statue of Marcus Aurelius, which is on the cover, but they cut out the fact that he is also on fire. Yes. Um, and his dog is watching and is totally terrified, but everyone <laughs> else um, is using him as a political prop. One of the things about this is you can't tell if it's a, until he sets himself on fire, and even the reaction to it, you can't tell if this is a political stunt that he, the Holy Fool, doesn't understand he's part of, if this is some kind of artistic stunt that he, the Holy Fool, doesn't understand is part of, or if at that point it's even happening. Yeah. <laughs> um, so because this th- that element of the of the movie is more surreal than the dream sequences, which are hyper surreal. Um, there's also this play of black and white and color, mm-hmm. and and the in the fact that the dialogue is often being superimposed both on the diegetic present of the film which is in color but also on um the dream the dream sequences some of which seem like they're um the russian poets some of which seem like they're the holy fools are the russian poets imagination of the holy fools and you're not sure which one. Yeah. Um, yes, and, and God has a conversation with Saint Catherine at some point about uh, about um, uh, Gorkachev, and and uh, and it's it's uh, and it, like this is just a, a almost comical way of describing how like dreamlike and surreal this film is. And I don't want to make it sound like it's inaccessible. I found it very moving. Um, it, it it is very sort of rooted. Even the dream sequences feel like a reality. Um, and it's very emotional. And I found it, maybe it's just the age I'm at. Um, I'm a person who's also kind of displaced. I'm from Cleveland, Ohio, and I will probably never live there again. Right. And and I feel that kind of loss very strongly. And I think that that loss, that separation of the poet from his homeland is, uh, is sort of, um, fills us with a real profound kind of sadness and sense of loss that, I think cuts through the surreality of, of the film. Um, and we, before we move on to the kind of thematic things, we have to uh, warn people the last nine minutes of the movie is a single shot of him carrying a candle across a drained pond. <laughs> and, uh, and that's, it takes nine minutes uh, of uninterrupted uh, screen time. And then, well, that's not the last shot. There is a following another sort of dreamlike shot that reminds me of Solaris actually. Um, and then, um, uh, but yeah. And so let's, uh, let's get into s- where, where do you want to begin? I, do you want to talk about translation? Well, I mean, the translation issue comes up the entire time that the poet is constantly saying that, that uh, his Italian is quite bad, but he actually communicates in Italian just fine, and he definitely understands it. Mm-hmm. Um, but he doesn't feel like he can express himself the same way he can in Russian. He also mocks his translator for, even though she can read Russian, reading Tarkovsky, and this we mean Tarkovsky's father, right. <laughs> poems in Italian and not Russian, even though she could, foreseeably. Um, and the first, the first line of the movie, they're at a convent, um, where she goes to see some, there's some sort of a fertility ritual that's going on at a convent, which we can talk about if you want. Um, but he tells her don't speak in Russian. Like he actually tells her, uh, to kind of, um, avoid Russian. It's just, and the implication is, is open to me. I mean, it could be that she's 
butchering the Russian and therefore uh, doing something wrong or that it's painful for him to hear Russian because of his nostalgia for Russia. Um, mm-hmm. there's, a, there's a few ways to take that, but there is this well, sort of... Well, it's definitely because all his scenes, when you're seeing it, it takes you forever to realize what's going on because you re- he's you're getting black and white scenes of what is apparently somewhere in Russia that he's remembering back of some kind of peasant childhood. Mm-hmm. Um, there's also these associations with women that bubble up the entire time um, where he sees the translator who seems to be kind of in love with him or at least wants an affair and is like kind of actually abusive towards him. Yeah. Um, But, um, but when he, when he thinks of her, she becomes his wife. She becomes a holy figure she gets associated with the Madonna at the beginning of the of the picture. He will not directly approach. He won't go and watch the the kind of Madonna fertility ritual at the beginning, where you know there's doves released as a miracle in this conversation about the the roles of men and women, where the priest um, is treated as sexist. And you and you wonder if he won't go and watch it because it's Catholic and he's Orthodox, even though he is obsessed with the similarities of their faith. Um, that's not stated, um, but it's strongly implied. Whereas the Italian woman, Eugenia, is totally secular. Now, in the context of Soviet filmmaking, and in the context of the fact that that um, you know the Russian Orthodox Church is still not, you know, even as late as the 80s, not fully restored in the Russian context, um, this is kind of an inversion where he's having. A secular Italian woman who should be able to explain this Catholic stuff to him, experience it and explain it back to him as an act of translation, um, while he's experiencing his own, yet he's obsessed with what she's seeing, and she's like, why won't you go see it? And he won't answer, basically, why. And then his first dream sequence, when he gets back to this, they go to this uh, old, dilapidated... um, medieval like hot springs that clearly like was you what you realize when you're walking through it that like most of it was emptied out during the during the fascist regime and um it was never fully restored and he's basically there with a bunch of misfits there's a there's a there's a colonel who's mentioned in the as a background player who has a child who's obsessed with chinese music in a way that's really strange um, and it's both comical, but further adding to how displaced all the people who are there are, mm-hmm. with the exception of this, of Andre, the said holy fool. Um, Domenico. Domenico, yeah. Um, his said holy fool, who Andre finds out is was, re- was released from the asylums after... Um, after the fascists are deposed and have just kind of been walking around the area... And he lives in this, you know, reclaimed villa that is half flooded. Mm-hmm. Um, and he may or may not live with his daughter concurrently. Um, it is unclear if his daughter character is actually still alive at the time that you're seeing it. Um, yeah, his backstory is that he kept his family captive in the basement or something for seven years or something. And, and finally 
so they re- they're released and that that as apparently when he was sent to the asylum at that point and um yeah and his whole sort of backstory is very odd and and you know as maybe this is just me as you know, whatever, a, a overly trained English professor, I'm sort of trying to figure out what, what, what it's a metaphor for or something. Right. And, uh, and, and it's just a very strange, um, uh, backstory for the kind of holy fool figure that he clearly is, I think for, uh, for Tarkovsky in this film. He's calling out the absurdity of, of a, of a whole lot of things and particularly this, this like refusal to deal with the past, which you get, you get some of that in here, and we must actually intersperse something here. This is not totally Tarkovsky's movie. Yeah. Um, he co-wrote it with another poet, um, uh, Tornino Guerrera, which partly I think to get the you know the poetics of the Italian right, but also Guerrera is a um, poet, but also a screenwriter. Um, and writer who similarly has known to make very surreal movies mm. um, and have worked with Antonioni. Um, so you have, you get the feeling that that maybe the Holy Fool character is more written um, Guerrera than, than um, Tarkovsky, but you don't really know what his role is, because other than his talk about Catherine, his religious import is unclear, particularly by the time he immobilates himself. Yeah. Um, which is, you know, a pretty desperate sin. And the, the next question you have to ask yourself is, does uh, Andre, the poet, is he actively killing himself? Um, or is he just having a heart attack that he knows is going to happen and because by, by the time you get towards the end, there's a bunch of... The, the main plot, believe it or not, gets more and more surreal yeah. um, itself. Because not only do you have the surreal scene that we're talking about with the Holy Fool in the town square, which lasts forever, yeah. um, uh, and people are standing still and not reacting to an old man setting himself on fire. Yeah. And when I say not reacting, I mean they aren't reacting. The only per- The only... Not even person. The only thing that shows a human reaction is his dog. Yeah. And you're interspersed with the poet who's now on his own, and you think it's in Florence or Rome. It, um, not He's no longer at the foothills, but you don't know how many days have passed from when they spent the time at the bombed-out chateau, which is most of the movie. Um, and he says that he's tired and his heart's hurting. Mm. Now, all we've really seen uh, since, since Eugenia left him, and uh, again, we're, we're having to talk about this all kinds of weird because... <laughs> it's a non-linear it's like movie, not right? not really plot. Yeah. Um, is that he, he goes into the aqueducts, um, gets really drunk, and lets the book of, of Tarkovsky poems burn up overnight while talking to a child who who he asks if she loves life and she says less, and then he reads poetry to her and then passes all drunk in the middle of the aqueducts. Yeah. Yes. And, and we um, can only assume that child's real, honestly. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we can only assume that child real, except she looks identical to the daughter of, the, of Domenico that we see in flashbacks. And we don't know, like, 
if that's just a coincidence or he's projecting that child into Domenico's flashbacks because we also don't know if those flashbacks are Domenico's or Andre's. I assume they're Andre's imagination yeah. of what Domenico and the rumors around Domenico are telling. And, and he's fixated on Domenico because at one point during one of his dream sequences, um, it may be the one where he hears God. I don't know if this is true, but um, he sort of opens a mirror and he sees Domenico as himself. Like So there's a clear doubling um, in, in, tar- in uh, Andre's mind there between him and right. Domenico. Yeah. And so towards the end, when Andre goes back to the to the to the pool, he goes back after after Domenico asked him, "Are you going to do what we talked about?" Instead of flying back to wherever he's going to fly to, I think maybe Russia, but it's unclear. He goes back to the villa with the hot springs, which are being clean, which are being drained and cleaned. Mm-hmm. And he then does the candle and walks for nine minutes, reciting something. And has a heart attack and continues walking until he falls over. Yeah. <laughs> and the, the candle that was given to him by Domenico um, and mm-hmm. who seemingly this task was assigned to him uh, by Domenico in, in Domenico's weird little apartment, which I want to talk about. Um, I've made that my background picture on uh, on Twitter at this point. I'm so obsessed with this movie. <laughs> and so um, but the uh, um, the the candle walk seems to have some kind of. Religious, I mean, clearly has some sort of religious uh, significance uh, because it seems to be some sort of uh, tribute or something to St. Catherine. Um, and and it happens, it begins, he lights the candle at the minute that Domenico lights himself in, in over in Rome during the, the political speech. And so um, both of their, and as that candle burns out, Andre apparently dies off screen as well. And so there, there is sort of a sense of um, the flame going out uh, between both of these men at the same time. Now, which St. Catherine is this? I assume it's the one who was beheaded and milk came out. Um, <laughs> and so that I assume, right. I assume that's the one, but, but it, well, I mean, cause it, there's, there's this local quote to a St. Catherine, but when I was like trying to figure out which one it was, um, because, St. Catherine of Siena, for example, would only be venerated by Catholics. Mm-hmm. Um, the poet's not Catholic. Um, but if, say, if it's St. Catherine of Alexandria, which I have no idea why she'd have a local cult in this weird place in Italy, um, she would be venerated by Catholics, cops, and, and Orthodox. And I am wondering if there's a, like a deliberate conflation of the two because... There's all this stuff with women being other women that first, when it first manifests, you're like, because we're all, you know, corrupted and, and we exist in the modern mediascape that we do, when Eugenia start, has this interaction with this other woman who may or may not be um, Andre's wife, actually, it almost comes off as a lesbian scene. Yeah. But then, but then there's this, there's this twisting of it into holy imagery so you get this profane turning into the sacred yeah um and you get this association of all women with a holy figure even this one woman who eugenia in an implied backstory there's this towards the end eugenia calls andre to see how he's doing after you know and is no longer you know belittling him because she's apparently shacked up with this guy um who she says is one thing, but is di- it is displayed clearly as a mobster. Yeah. And as 
um, Domenico is setting himself on fire. They cross-cut back to her. It makes it look like he, she's running towards Domenico. She's not. It's a different part of town. And the police are coming up the stairs towards what is likely her boyfriend, who is clearly taking patronage. It looks like he's about to be arrested. But there's this, this way in which this translator, who is a profane figure, who is like lost and secular and you know looking for... I mean, to use a cliche, looking for love in literally all the wrong places, including a married man who barely recognizes that women are separate from a holy virgin. Yeah. Um, and we know this in his dreams because because the the outline of Eugenia turns into the outline of his pregnant wife turns into the holy mother. Yeah. Like, um, there there's this there's this theme that you that also comes up in Andrei Rubliev of even like highly profane, secular, and even dangerous figures being ways into um, the, the the sublimity of, of grace or, or whatever. Like, the, the warlord, and God, yeah. Yeah, the warlord figure. And and, and, yeah. and you, you, you get a similar thing with Eugenia because Eugenia isn't condemned in this movie at all. In fact, she, you know, she's, see, she's portrayed... She's clearly portrayed as lost, and I see how some people could even see this movie as misogynistic, but I don't think it is. Um, but she's also portrayed as a as a means for him to find some kind of aesthetic and imagistic and iconic a redemption for something that we and we don't know what is the the gap in the movie is that yes, he is clearly writing this. Um, this biography on this this Russian artist who studied under Paganini. I, I went and looked this up. He did the, the, One of the confusing things about this is some of the art mentioned in this is real, yeah. and some of it's made up for the movie. Yeah. Um, so the specific Russian composer that he's looking for did not actually exist in real life, which is confusing because the poets mentioned in this did. Yeah. Um, and I don't know if that's supposed to tell me something or not. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, so he's he's doing the, he's going off on this uh, this composer who who went back to Russia and killed himself. Yeah. So so you have this triple. It's not just marrying. You have a tripartite marriage of artists who, because we're also taking Domenico as some kind of artist some way. Like his holy fool is his holy foolness is somehow tied to be adjacent to art. Yeah. Um, I think that's also in the weirdness of his apartment, like that's super flooded out yet also beautiful. Yet, like you don't you wonder how you wouldn't get like malaria from living there. Um, <laughs> well, the one kind of like visual motif in the movie um, is water, right? And, and they're mm -hmm. like spaces that are just dripping wet all the time. It's very, it's a very moist movie. And, uh, and Domenico's apartment is, is a good example of that, but it's by far the only one, um, when he's, uh, when Andre is in that little, uh, abandoned church, I mean, he's walking in flooded, um, water. Right. And, um, and, and often it's juxtaposed against fire. And so you have these very elemental, um, visual components in the movie. And, and to me, the, 
let's set aside the fire for now, but the, which purification, I don't know. I'm just going to the, you know, the old bag of tricks, <laughs> trying to figure out what all this means, but the water is very liquid, of course. And the, the, the film's narrative and all of the figures in it are also very liquid and they kind of bl- bl- flow into one another. Um, and so it, you're right. It's more than just doubling. It's, there's almost like a complete permeability of identity, um, across across the board and so everybody just sort of bleeds into everybody else at some point and i think that the 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 landscape being so wet and murky is uh is a big part of that as well i think it's just it's a way in which he kind of explores that um in that way um the the one thing i gotta ask you about i'm just obsessed with this and i you know about almost everything more than I do. And so I was going to pick your brain about this as well. Um, at one point um, in Domenico's apartment, there is a sign on the wall that he has scrawled one plus one equals one. Okay. And uh, earlier, right before we see that he's, he says he, it's like wine or something. There's some weird communion scene between him and Andre where he gives him a glass of wine and a piece of bread. Um, but he pours the wine into his hand and he says one drop and one drop don't make two drops. They combine and make one drop, right? And then mm-hmm. that's extended into the one plus one equals one. What for you? I mean, I, my brain is going a few places when I'm trying to interpret that that slogan. Um, but what what does it mean for you? Well, I was going all over the place with it because the you have two identities merging into one identity. You have you have an also. One plus one plus one equals one. Mm-hmm. Uh, if you're a Christian, right? Sure. Like, um, but you also have the play on, like, you know, the Sovietness of it. Mm. And you know, you can't. I don't think Tchaikovsky could miss. You know, the one plus. You know, the one plus one equals two. Reference nineteen four. Even Tchaikovsky, um, you know, Soviet dissident that he was, may also be playing with that. Mm. Um, there's during this time period, you know, part of the reason why Tarkovsky's movies get so strange and he's kind of a little bit unhinged is that his relationship to Russia is getting stretched. He's also increasingly spending time outside of Russia. His spiritual concerns, um, he's, you know, he's only been able to hide it and, subli- and sublimate it for so long. And... Um, you can only hide it behind, you know, historical epochs that, uh, about the creation of Russia that you can sell to slightly post-Stalinist um, Khrushchevian uh, bureaucracy for, for for so long. You can only do, um, you can only hide your religious metaphors in atheistic science fiction for so long. <laughs> like, so you know, he's spending more and more time. Yes, he's operating on the Imperator Moss film still. So he's not. He's not become a defector, but he's there is a sense that he's spending a lot of time outside of home. Mm-hmm. Um, and I'm wondering if that's also what he's getting to is that you know be, one of the things that I was actually fascinated with this is this supposedly about how the East religiously meets the West religiously. and is this about the unity of the church somehow like, mm-hmm. One plus one, the Western Church and the Eastern Church, still the body of Christ. 
I but he's a he's a pretty strict Orthodox Christian, so that's almost heretical from his standpoint. And they, like yeah. there's all, I and I, I looked that up. Um, I also think I'm going to tie it back into this whole which Saint Catherine are we referring to? Mm. It's pretty clear that the first Saint Cat the Catherine of the area is Catherine of Siena, who's like the patron saint of protectors against illness, the United States, Italy, miscarriages. People ridiculed for their faith, sexual temptation, and a patroness against death by fire. Hmm. Okay, that that works. <laughs> that works. In a However, the, the there is the the Saint Catherine of Alexandria is the Saint Catherine who dies, and who was beheaded and has the milk miracle. Yeah. And since both are referred as all, both are referred to in the film, so I'm wondering if like. This is also a way where he's showing like there's a continuity here um, to this, you know, pre, pre, you know, um, schismatic unity of faith, but it's expressed in a way that that you know political events have separated. Um, you also get the feeling. That Tarkovsky is making fun of the Italian communists mm. because they would have been the people, you know, setting up the protestations in the square, um, and yet, you know, they're they they are portrayed literally as almost like unholy fools because they're mimes gesturing to this man's delusion, and yet they're letting him burn himself to death. Yes. Um, and they're all standing in very kind of statuesque sort of ways. They don't seem right. even human. Yeah. Yeah. They don't, their response isn't human. It, it is. Un, and at that point, that is part of where the movie is where I'm like, I don't know if this is a dream or not. I don't know if this is actually happening. Hmm. It's not in black and white. So I don't know for sure. It's, it's a dream because usually the black and white sequences are signaled to you as they are. They are the nostalgia. Yeah. Of the film. But, um, you don't know. Yeah. And then and then um Domenico's dog, which is also clearly around Andre, just shows up. Uh, you know, yeah. when he has his first dream, he just walks out of the bathroom in that stark We should also talk about that room that he's staying in and uh at the um at the hot springs, because that room almost seems like it couldn't exist. Like it is in the most stark plaster, and then there is this art deco white bathroom that is pristine but also is totally drained and it looks like it's somewhere in between the sort of like starkness of the Soviet you know like mm. brutalist crapples that he's normally filming um, but also it's Italian and clearly in this ancient place and when you're in that room it, do it does feel completely otherworldly and you have that dog just walk out that dog watches Domenico burn himself, but he's chained up. And then, after Andre is dead, question mark, um, in the final sequence where Russia is superimposed in the bombed-out building of an Italian ancient church. Yeah. Um, I want to get to that, yeah. Right, which, again, one plus one equals one. Right. Um, where there is also... Not Domenico, not Eugenia. Eugenia's not dead. But Domenico's dog is with Tarkovsky. Now, if you know anything about Tarkovsky personally, he has a aesthetic boner for um, 
dogs and horses. He yeah. loves them. They show up all the time. The opening scene has a horse in it. <laughs> right. Yeah. He's, like, if this is her Koski movie, even if it doesn't seem like it needs to have one, there's going to be a dog and a horse. Yeah. And the dog and a horse are going to be likable, and the humans probably aren't. Yeah. But, um... And this is a German Shepherd, so, it, I mean, it theoretically could be a vicious dog, right? Uh, yeah, but, but it's not portrayed as vicious whatsoever. No. It's just like... Doo, 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 it's doo. very loving, yeah. <laughs> yeah. And, and I guess that's... you talked about the closing image which is another long shot um this very slow um you know zoom out of uh andre and the dog sitting by this little puddle uh at, at the old russian estate from the dreams and then we start seeing that around them is this uh burned out italian uh church um church the, which we have seen in real life already yeah right yeah right and, and so i I've, this is one thing i want to say about the one plus one equals one um so there's one sense in which this film feels bleak and sad. Um, it's about loss and the in uh, impossibility of overcoming the distance between two things, two cultural things, right? And so translation is impossible, right? And that, and it's very kind of sad. Um, the one plus one plus one, which comes to us through the figure of the holy fool, um, is a way to kind of... Um, bring together incommensurate things, right? And, and create this um, new landscape in which the nostalgic Russia from his childhood exists alongside the church that we the nostal- Yeah, the, the nostalgic Italy of his current obsession, which is also kind of implied by the whole um, Russian composer who studied under the Paganini like, yeah. story. The other interesting thing that you get about it is there's multiple times where where Andre says, and this is interesting because you know you can interpret this in a communist way, mm-hmm. and you can interpret this in a Christian way, and of course um, Tarkovsky is going to be playing with both. But when Eugenia and and Andre talk, and Andre responds, I forgot what Eugenia says, something about. You know what we need to come together, and and even though he's longing for his homeland and imagining his homeland, he says we need the falling away of borders mm-hmm. altogether. Yes, that's <laughs> like, right. Yeah, that's yeah, that's the only um, cop, uh, whatever uh, solution to the problem of intranslatability is just right. getting rid of borders, so there is no more translation um, possible. And so, yeah, that is a very uh, I mean, it does have political ramifications, as you say. Right, right? Uh, it's uh, internationalist, if you will. Right. So, yeah, but it's like, but it's like internationalist in a way that Tarkovsky seems to think is possible only through God. Yeah. Um, which is again, like, he's playing with his Soviet interlocutors a bit, but I think he really means it. Well, in that way, they, he's Catholic, right? right. <laughs> so, well, or, or small, he, small C Catholic. Okay. He's small C Catholic in that he, you know, this, this is also so partly about even though it's in the context of you know uh, a secular capitalist state that has a strong communist tradition um, Italy and you know a uh, arguably communist state that is at, at the time that this movie's made is kind of barely so this is this is during perestroika and high Gorbachevism um, where uh, there's a push between these. I mean, Italy and Russia are also pushing to develop borders, and yet 
it's portrayed that only the religious elements of these two cultures could possibly break the borders down, mm. but also the artistic elements of these two quarter, quarters. And you get the feeling that Tarkovsky is strongly implying, and I happen to know he believes this because I've read his, I've read English translations of this aesthetic theory, that the you know the iconic, the artistic, the the aesthetic is a way to break those borders down and have sublime religious experiences. This is why the iconic in the symbolon mm. sense of the word. And I use symbolon, I, I don't mean to be pretentious and not say symbol, but symbolon in, in Catholic, Christian, and Orthodox thinking has a much broader meaning. I mean, honestly, it has a much broader meaning in, in um, Platonic thinking, too. Um, the symbolon is not just a symbol. It is it is an embodiment um, that is beyond, it, you know, it is both aesthetic and spiritual and physical at once. And that's part of what's going on here. And um, Well, and then that makes me think of the, the candle walk again. So this is sort of a, a ritualistic uh, thing that he's doing to kind of close out his life. And it, and it seems to be some sort of homage um so basically he lights a candle that that Domenico gave him um he starts at one end of this pool that's been drained um that all the spa people were swimming in and um and then he's trying to walk it across and it's muddy still or sloshy and it keeps blowing out so he has to go back and and he starts over and it takes 9 minutes before he finally gets to the end and right in the middle you could tell he has like a, a physical episode. It's like he can tell he's about to die. Like his, his, he's starting to die. Um, and, and so there's this sort of desperation to do an aesthetic act that has a religious, uh, function, I suppose. You know what I'm saying? And, um, and if he's doubled then, if his identity is melded on some level with, um, Domenico, what is his, final act. I mean, what is the self-immolation? What is this speech that he's giving about um, going back to where the point society went, took the wrong path and, and trying to kind of go backwards in, in, uh, in time. His speech is actually really interesting. I wish I had a script of it in front of me, um, but the speech is actually a very interesting one that he gives. Um, and, um, and it has very kind of interesting political overtones about the decay of society and, and, it seems thematically to fit with, with uh, Andre's concerns in here, but um, it's a purely political act. Um, and, and right, and so I yeah, which is also interesting because another thing we need to know about Guerrera, uh, Tino Guerrera, uh, or uh, Tonino Guerrera, excuse me, um, is he was a highly decorated uh, Italian filmmaker, but it was an atheist and was actually one of the last people to. You know, be one of the foreign people honored by the USSR for his art, partially because of you know his his um, his disbelief, and so he's working with Tarkovsky, who is an ardent believer. Mm. Um, and so, I also think there is a way in which Tarkovsky is saying something about the nature of communism, as if it is a secularized form of the communion of the church of the universal church. Um, which is, you know, and also that maybe in some weird way it's still doing God's work whether it wants to or not. Mm. Um, because this is a theme that Tarkovsky is playing with the entire time. And he did not love the Soviet Union, make no mistake about it. But, like, 
he also didn't totally ever condemn it, and one wonders why exactly, and also his penchant for working with atheist artists, but he's He's talking about the aesthetic experience as if like these atheist artists are bringing something religious into the world, whether they mean to or not. And and you know, imagine a debate with Bergman because Bergman, you know, Mister Mister Swedish secular atheist and Tarkovsky, Mister, you know, um, uh, I'm you know, I live in a communist country and I work within a communist system, but I am a crypto and then not so crypto hyper orthodox Christian mm -hmm. who also believes that all this is manifested through aesthetics. Mm. Um, so there's all this identify you know identification, and you're right, Domenico doesn't even though he has again Domenico offers communion mm -hmm. to Andre effectively. But Domenico's not. Re you don't know that Domenico's actively religious. Uh, we, except but you had a strong in yeah. indication that he's probably not. Yeah, yeah, because he's he's unable to make the walk for Saint Catherine, right? And that's why he passes the candle on to Andre. Um, right. And Domenico goes and does a political act instead. Um, ostensibly, Correct. I assume that's a political act. <laughs> well, it's, it's it's a political act, but it's a political act that it, it is senseless, basically. Yeah. Like like even like. I mean, right before he sets himself on fire, is how bad have things gone that you that an old fool has to yell at you? Yeah. Um, yeah. And and it doesn't move anyone, and that you know, and they treat it. I mean, it they treat it literally as if it is a clown act. They're not laughing at him, but like the, the mimes, the whole you know, br play the music, and you hear the music, which is Beethoven Fifth, but the music is coped for him setting himself on fire. When they say cue up the music, they hand him gasoline. Yeah. Like. Yeah, and then they and say, they allowed, yeah, go ahead. And since he also can't, he did not do the walk for St. Catherine, he is not protected against fire. Mm. Oh, interesting. Oh, my, that's interesting. Um, and and well, This is why looking up your saints is important in these movies. <laughs> we should have brought Michael Farmer on for this. Uh, he's, <laughs> he's sort of the master of saints at this point in his life. Yeah, no, that's that's very interesting. Um, and, and yeah, let me... I found a, a an interview from 1980 um, when this idea is being developed, and they've settled on the the name nostalgia. The the plot is quite different. It's going to be about a professor and, and this sort of thing. Um, but at some point, this is an, a 1980 interview with Gian Luigi Rondi, um, and at one point Tarkovsky says, "Bear with me here, my old eyes here." And so, given this problem, it is necessary to attempt. To arrive at a solution, and there can only be one solution, contact, communication. Art is culture. Culture is the soul and the memory of the people. There must be the possibility to transmit, to communicate culture, because only through this communication, a communion almost, right, um, this exchange can man arrive at his entirety. However much you may be convinced that you have achieved a certain level of fullness, however much you may have experienced and studied. If you ignore that which is that which there is elsewhere, if you lack that which culture has given to others far from you, you are lacking something. You are not complete. You cannot truly say 
that you have achieved the fullness which defines a true, whole, complete man. Um, culture is like blood. It must circulate, and it must circulate normally everywhere. Otherwise, what happens is what happens in a body when blood does not circulate. At some point, gangrene immediately develops. And this is, to me, going back to the one plus one equals one, right? These are two separate cultural things that must meet each other in order to not kind of calcify uh, and, yeah. and, and just you know, rot. And, and I think, is this the critique he has of the Soviet union then is that it's, it's isolation um, culturally from the rest of the world is allowing its culture to kind of die and not share with the rest of the world. And I not, would think and not maybe that's not his critique of the Soviet union. I think it's his critique of Orthodox Russia. Oh, interesting. Okay. Um, and, you know, why did Orthodox Russia get taken over by the Soviets in the first place? Yeah. Because it had alienated itself as some kind of their realm. And, you know, I don't think he ever says this. This is a strong... And it also, you know, he would also just say that, you know, Russia's godless and aestheticless and all this. Um, he can already explain that almost like Solzhenitsyn can or whatever. But um, he's more... But his vision is... Uh, you will notice that it's... That like he believes in internationalism and the power of art in, in this in a way that communists are supposed to, but they clearly don't. Um, and Christians are also supposed to, but they clearly don't. Um, <laughs> so the solution so, is to be a, a communist Christian, right? Uh, yeah, sort of. I mean, like Christian socialists, let's call them. Um. Well, I mean, I, I think Tarkovsky would balk at that that reading, but it, it is sort of <laughs> just. It is sort of this idea that, like you, that that the lived experiences of peoples and cultures are real. They are manifested in in art and and in daily life. And that between cultures, the the other can be encountered and incorporated, but it changes you. Now, I I think as a person who spent a lot of time abroad, this is fundamentally true. Mm. Um, or if you're if you're a person who also if you're from multiple cultures at once, um, and you know in some degree everybody is, but you know like if they're really divergent or one is oppressed, the other are are there are they have a history of strong separation. Um, when you experience both, you can come back. You actually are a new thing that can come back to neither. Mm -hmm. Like my experience of America, since I spent ten years abroad. Um, it will never be that of an American who didn't. And it will also never be that of a Mexican, a Korean, um, or an Egyptian where I live. Right. It's, it, it is a third thing. We talk about third culture kids, but Tarkovsky's onto this in like the spiritual way. Like this is, this blows, this blows it apart. But the experience of art, and I think that's why he mocks the translation of, of the, uh, uh, not that Eugenia needs, to know the Russian because the Russian is superior to the Italian. It's that she needs to know the Russian so that she can experience as as something to incorporate in herself and let it change her, which if she is experiencing it in Italian, it is already one step removed and made more safe to her own culture. Interesting. So that blockage does not allow the full incorporation. Interesting. Um, and so the one on the right side of the equal sign is the, the person who has allowed the the culture to change them, right? The the alien right. culture to change them. Yeah. The, the, the third thing that emerges from the two things being add, added, you, you, one plus one equals one. 
Yeah. So that's fast. And you know, I got to say, I want not to get off the movie, but this is a, I think a profound, um, complication to our conversations about cultural appropriation, right. Uh, and the way in which you, you, you know what I'm saying that there are people who think it's, uh, I mean, there are people who have like a moral claim against adopting practices from other cultures, uh, be it, you know, whatever during ho- celebration of holidays or whatnot, or styles of dress. And I've always felt those arguments to be a little naive about the, the nature of culture and how culture is constantly in flux, uh, and, and evolving and, and appropriating one another. And, and, uh, and, and I think that Tarkovsky's point here, you have to believe that culture is somehow something inherited by blood and has not changed for that to make any sense. Yeah. I mean, what, one of my favorite examples is African American culture. It is both African and Scotch Irish because those are the poverty cultures in which it was in which it was bloomed but it is neither mm-hmm. african nor scotch irish it is its own thing mm-hmm. it exists because of the 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 crash of those cultures in the south and and it exists in opposition to a wolf planter aristocracy culture but but they all inform each other yeah um the idea that I, I am all, I'm always hesitant to totally condemn people to talking about cultural appropriation and it's like, oh, these Wokies and their cultural appropriation, you know, because I do see some of what they are talking about, cultural erasure, mm-hmm. cultural misappropriation, um, disregarding cultural norms entirely, not respecting the origin culture, hiding the origin culture. I get all of that. But if you take it as a as a total prohibition of cultural mixing. I mean, you know, my favorite ones are like people yelling at people about doing yoga yeah. because yoga was literally invented and in its form in the States to popularize Indian culture to Europeans. That's what it was invented for. Nobody, you know, yeah. and I actually consider, I consider that form of cultural Platonism, um, I consider it inherently reactionary and ethnocentric, and it will almost always become racist. Yeah. Like, and, and even you know, even if it's done for anti-racist reasons, that's, you know, that that is how I see it going. Um, but I don't. I, I kind of even reject talking about the the stupid term. You don't. You don't see. You don't hear me complaining about cultural appropriation, and I only talk about it to people like you at this point, um, because. <laughs> I don't even want to give it the validity of discussion. Yeah. Like, it, it, there's too many different things hidden in it. Yeah. Um, I mean, because, I, I mean, if you were to talk about, like, appropriating Catholic culture, you know, for atheist reasons and and all this, even that's an interesting question. I mean, um, one of my favorite poets is this uh, Macon man um, who grew up elsewhere named Bruce Beasley. Bruce Beasley wrote an entire, and he, Bruce Beasley is a hardcore Catholic, um, but Bruce Beasley wrote an entire series about redeeming Ronald Piss Christ. Mm. Um, I have that book. I keep on I keep on looking at my bookshelf because <laughs> I have about seven bookshelves of poetry back here, and I'm like I should probably grab some of these right now because they're <laughs> relevant. But um, uh. There's a lot of Catholic artists. I 
think about the the science fiction author Gene Wolfe, who's huge on this. Yeah. Um, who talk about how these secular anti-religious mythologies they can't help it, and you can you can redeem them. Yeah. Um, and and so, but you could also see like some of this, some of that is tied to the same issues as what we would call appropriation. Yeah. So yes, I I would say, you know. Like I won't wear like I don't wear a handbook or uh, or Galabea just willy nilly as a costume. Um, but if you yelled at me because I wore one when I was in Egypt or in Korea, you can go bleep yourself. Yeah. Like, <laughs> and nobody when I lived there had a problem with it yeah. when I did it. Yeah. So like. Yeah. No, uh, it, it is very yeah. Um, it's interesting and and it also I mean it reminds me of people like where I live now. I mean, one of the cultural problems of this area is that it's a, uh, no one ever moves in, right. Who has not. And so it's a very kind of, uh, enclosed, um, inward looking culture. Right. And you're in Pennsylvania, right? Yeah. I'm sort of right between Johnstown Altoona. And, um, and so it's, uh, it's a, um, I think that's one of the My cultural problems is from Johnstown. So I, I know the area. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yes. It is culturally very cold as off. I, I actually, you know, everyone, I remember, being lectured when I was in a, a young conservative man in Georgia meeting in my MFA, all these um, liberal people from Cleveland and Michigan coming down and lecturing me about how racist we were. <laughs> and uh, now, now I'm from Cleveland, and I can yeah. tell you the west side and the east side are not just separated by a river. <laughs> no, yeah, you. I know, I know. <laughs> so. um, but well, I know this, and I know. I used to, you know, I used to joke about how they could use the South to hide all their racism. That's not a joke. I just said it blankly. But I remember when I when I um, moved up to Johnstown and then traveled through Ohio. One, I saw more Confederate flags than I'd ever seen in Georgia at the time uh, since the eighties. Now I did see a lot of them growing up, but like, yes, and I couldn't explain them because I was like, "You're gonna pull the heritage thing and uh, Union State." Well, my family in West Virginia loved to fly the Confederate flag, and it makes even less sense there. You only exist because they did, they seceded from the Confederates. Right. I, that, the, the, the West Virginia itself is a is a fascinating history of like what happened to you. You were the you were the Appalachian, uh, I'll say poo kickers who you know even though you were rednecks and Baptists ran into the hills because you didn't support slavery, and now. Your cultural identity might as well be called, you know, United Lynchburg. So, like, <laughs> sorry, dialectics. We're digressing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But it's, it's um, um, but you know what? I think it is part of that inability to flow. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. um, the 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 stagnation of it. because I actually think Appalachian culture, um, northern and southern, is is wonderful. Mm -hmm. I will defend it. I will defend it as actually being a lot less racist than it's portrayed. Um, I will defend it as being more racist than it's portrayed, <laughs> like in both directions. But it, when it moves, it grows. Um, when you experience it, you understand it, and or at least you have an end to understanding it. This is one thing I love about Tarkovsky: is Tarkovsky does see peoples as fundamentally different. Um, but he doesn't think that they're totally alien to one another. And I worry about the way we conceptualize things right now, culturally, yeah. politically. 
Um, yeah, you mentioned me living in Pennsylvania, right? And that's the mm-hmm. pejorative term that people sometimes apply to here. And and I'm like, I mean it in both the pejorative and in the loving sense. No, no, it's true, but it, but it's not incorrect. I'm not saying it. I didn't mean to to shame you for that. It's actually a, a apt description of where we live. I live um, in Mormonlandia. Yeah, <laughs> but. It, it, there isn't a benefit to it, right? And so, I mean, on Facebook, if you're in California or one of the coasts, right, um, your view of those people um, is completely mediated through the political discourse on social media or whatever news media you consume. I have to, I mean, I live with these people. I teach these students, right? And yeah, I see them as people who have political ideas in some cases that I completely find abhorrent, but I can also see that that person who I think has like fascist political ideas is also a much better person than most other people (laughs) in many other ways. Right. Um, They're uh, capable of acts of kindness. And so I see them as a complicated person in ways that um, is only possible because I have been, I'm like Andre uh, in this film. I've been displaced from my home and and slapped down someplace I'd feel like I don't belong. And um, but that misplacement, that displacement, um, gives me a perspective. And, and I I do feel more often than not um, a kind of like sympathy and, and kinship um, with with people that I normally would be completely um, against, quote unquote, um, politically. And so I think there is a benefit to this kind of cross-cultural sharing. I mean, I'm against everyone politically, so I'm well, okay. <laughs> yes, I, but, know. I know you are. <laughs> but, um, <laughs> um, no, I mean, uh, I don't care what it is you have to say. It doesn't matter anyway. Uh, anyway I'm against it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I forget to. Um, no, I, it's, uh, I actually, I feel that a lot when I hear, as at one hand, when I, when I, when I hear things in QAnon and whatnot, um, I am terrified. Yeah. And another hand, and on, on the other hand, and when I hear a lot of people from where I grew up talk about people in the cities, I'm terrified. Mm-hmm. On the other hand, I can move in those places as a person who doesn't stand out, um, people will comment that I don't have a southern accent anymore, except when I say water, it's my shibboleth. Um, <laughs> um, shibboleth is not my shibboleth. Water is my shibboleth. <laughs> but um, I will I, I, I'll, I'll point out, though, if you, if, you, if you see me go back to the south, I have the accent in about five minutes. Yeah. Um, I... When I hung out, my best friend in Korea was uh, a newfie who lived in Ireland. Um, and you'll see me say mate and stuff sometimes because of the affectation. When I hung out with him, I found my speech patterns becoming bizarre because we were speaking a mixture of Conglish, newfie, and Irish slang. Now, you could accuse me, and I had someone on Facebook accuse me of cultural appropriation because I was typing this way without thinking once. Mm-hmm. Um uh, but it was honest in the flow that I was going with that I was reciprocating the speech patterns, particularly when we drank together, mm-hmm. um, because we were comfortable with each other. And that's you know, and he picked up Americanisms from me, mm-hmm. and we began to speak in this patra that was almost unique to the like four or five people who hung out with us <laughs> that you know had had bits of Korean in it and bits of of 
I, I would say Smitey. Now, I don't know if anyone knows what that is, but it pretty much it's, it's something said almost only in Newfoundland. Mm. Um, and even though I spent some, some of my childhood in Nova Scotia, I'm not uh, a Newfie. Like, uh, it's, <laughs> that's, that's foreign to me, too. They're those weird people on that island over there. Um, and, um, but it it's comes from travel. You pick up where you're at. Like, yeah. um, and I think... You know, I think that's interesting. Um, poetically, I'm obsessed with it. You will, um, in my poetry, particularly not in the book that you've probably read, but in stuff I've written since then, there is a slippage between regions and um, and whole parts of the world. Like I will make references to things and 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 different parts of the world because they speak to each other to me in parallel, mm-hmm. and I no longer care if other people understand it. If they will go with me to experience it via language, no, they will not know what I'm feeling and thinking. They can't. They haven't had those experiences. And and that, you know, and that focus on lived experience that you get so trotted out in liberal political circles, I don't mock that because in some sense it's real. Um, however, if you take that to its logical conclusion, and the lived experience is not just categorical, um, it makes human communication impossible if you assume that that's the only thing that matters. Um, because because your lived experience is not just your category type and your demographic uh, demeanor, particularly such broad ones as our made-up racial categories. Right. Um, it is a whole plethora of things that have to do with region, class, family background, race, of course, yes, but also like ethnicity, where you just were at a given time, what you've experienced, your actual, you know, your your traumas, etc. And I actually find the way that we talk about this right now to be much less honest than this artistic way that Tarkovsky is trying to express it, because Tarkovsky is not saying um, that any of that's invalid. Um, or that it is easy to comprehend and share but that it can be comprehended and shared through, through you know, um, through a motive aesthetic experience. And Tarkovsky would say that's because the you know, motive experience is spirit is like the shadow we can get of God. Mm-hmm. Um, now I don't know that I would say that, but that's what Tarkovsky would imply. Mm. Yeah, and I find that I mean this is maybe why this movie appealed to me subconsciously. Um, I, I find it one of those movies I will just sort of watch and just puzzle over and, and not really, it's a, it's a, it's a subliminal <laughs> sort of effect because this is something that I, I really, it's a dissatisfaction I have with a lot of political discourse. I think you were referring to like standpoint epistemology and that sort of um, um, approach to, uh, to culture. And yeah, and I feel like taken to its natural conclusion, it can result in, in separation, right. And, and not the kind of understanding that they're seeking. Um, and all the, at the same time, I want to kind of keep in the front of my mind, uh, the fact that power dynamics do play a role often in cultural exchange, right. And, you know, us, Going into Iraq is not <laughs> the kind of cultural exchange I'm I'm talking about here, right? This is uh, uh, that's a different sort of uh, cultural exchange that that were happen- that was happening there, but uh, but what we see with Andre at the end of this movie, taking this re- these religious steps um, at the end of his life, 
when at the beginning of the movie he refused to walk into that convent, right? Um, mm-hmm. I feel like that is him reaching out um, at the end of his life to sort of make that connection. And then in that, if that's an image of the afterlife or whatever, and he doesn't look particularly happy, uh, you know, which is a, a complex. He's like sort of sternly in, in that scene where those two worlds are together. But I call that staring Russianly. <laughs> Even the dog was staring Russianly <laughs> in that scene. Yeah. Um, but, but I mean, I think it is a sort of, um, there's an optimism to this movie um, that is a little hidden um, and you have to kind of like tease at it and tear at it for a while before it shows itself. Um, And and it's all with the kind of madness of 1.1 equals one. At first I went down the road. Is this Boolean algebra? Um, Yeah. I was thinking this has something to do with like logical circuits and that kind of thing. And and, uh, and that was on a, that was a dead end for me, but um, um, this would be somebody's dissertation. Tarkovsky is not a cybernetic theorist. (laughs) Um, (laughs) But uh, but it's uh, no, I think, I think that's, the the one is unified, but it is also separate. It is something new, um, and I think also like there's this transcendence of. I mean, particularly when you're thinking about the tensions not between the between the political east and political west, but also between the religious east and the religious west. That Tarkovsky is not necessarily saying that oh, like the Catholics and the Orthodox can be one, but you know. The heterodox Christians, from his standpoint, are still Christians, mm-hmm. um, and that we have to try to understand each other. And for him to engage in that, the kind of like going from Saint Catherine of of um, Alexandria to Saint Catherine of Siena, one of which is universal, and the other specific to Catholicism, and doing that walk, which the Italian holy fool does not do. Mm-hmm. Um, you know he he finds a kind of new home envisioned in that last image. You know, it's Domenico's dog. It's, it's the Russian peasant house that he misses so much, but it's also in the grand cathedral that was Catholic. Mm-hmm. Um, and it is a world where the borders have truly fallen away. Mm-hmm. Um, and he basically thinks art on its own terms in its own cultural milieu, this is the important thing. He like this is why he's iffy on translation, um, because part of letting something change you is doing the work to incorporate it. And yes, you can do it in translation. Like I'm not against poetry in translation. Like I, I, there's so many, so many poets I love in languages that I do not read. Right. Um, but it's, it's uh. It's something that you do realize. I mean, as a poet, I always know, like, okay, if I read Rauka in German, and if I read Rauka in English, because 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 my German is not, you know, I mean, my German is fun. Um, <laughs> uh, like, I read German very well. My, my German pronunciation is bad. Mm. And uh, my Dutch is sehr schlack. <laughs> and um, and uh, but I know that it's a very different experience mm-hmm. in German because I can read it. Um, I do not know it as the actual experience of someone who is fluent in German and fluent in the kinds of German Rock is using. I mean, um, 
this is also important for philosophy. Uh, Nietzsche, and believe it or not, Hegel. Hegel is so dependent on weird Swabian German that, like, a lot of the a lot. When I try to explain that, like, if you don't understand that Hegel's making puns all the time that relate this abstract logic to both Hermeticism and also Lutheran Pietism, you don't really understand Hegel. Mm-hmm. And Hegel's never going to be fun to read. When I read Hegel in German, it got harder. But it got harder partly because I realized that the levels of meaning were greater than English allowed in the one word. Right. English allows it, but not in any singular word we can pick. Right. Um, and so it's like the worst poetry ever. But like, um, philosophy is important this way too. I think I think Nietzsche Nietzsche is easier to understand and read, believe it or not. But like, is similar. Um, and I think a lot of things you have to approach with this ability to incorporate its original context. I think this is true in English with English speakers from cultures and times that we don't really know. Um, I mean, Shakespeare is so mistaught because the context of Shakespeare is mistaught. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I, you know, I'm one of those people who's like, well, you know, I'd rather not teach this and, than teach it as some kind of, like, checklist that everyone's got to do because we all got to read Romeo and Juliet and you're all going to read it wrong and you're not going to get any of the... And I'm like, well, there's no wrong reading. Yeah, shut up, Stanley Fish. You're dead. Um... <laughs> I have yeah. not come to 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 praise Stanley's fish, but to bury him. Um, <laughs> yeah. But I mean, I, I do think that you have to engage in it in that level, and I think Tarkovsky wants you to, but also wants you to think that it it is worth doing. It is worth it is worth coming together. You know, I I think Tarkovsky's movies are as he gets older, they're more more surreal. Um, they're less and less Russian. Yeah. I mean, this movie's this movie's mostly in Italian. Yeah, you know. Yeah, and and it's and it's very interesting. The I mean, there's a lot of like visual like dreaminess in which the camera will be moving, and then a character is sort of apparently in two places at once. Uh, that it's an effect created by this moving camera um, across a landscape, and and it gives this sort of it it not only creates a dreamlike space, it kind of complicates the idea of space, right? Um, uh, like it, it, everything else is fluid in the movie as well. Spaces are too, which is again, what allows the sharing that we see at the end, that kind of synthesis of his two worlds at the end of the movie. Um, but I think that um, one thing I do want to kind of touch on here before we close out is the name nostalgia of the movie. And it's got an H in it to, I guess that's in Russian. I guess that's the Russian uh, spelling of it, I would assume. Um, but you know, that has a negative connotation for most people today. We think of it as like remembering, this, like make America great again is this sort of false memory of a past that never was, right? And and to be nostalgic is to mean that you just sort of want to, there's a form of escapism, right? From the complications of today, you want to go back to a simpler time. And you, of course, you oversimplify it in your memory. Um, and I don't think that's what he's doing with this. And and um, the, the nostalgia that he has, the, the nostalgia for old Russia, 
Russia that is created by the end is is an entirely new thing, right? Um, it, it's a it's almost a redemption uh, of the old um, by adding yeah. to it the new, and, and and I think that's an interesting way to uh, to approach our own pasts as well. Right. Like, yeah. Well, I think nostalgia is toxic, but I also believe in this. Like I'm a historicist, right? Like mm-hmm. you know, I'm a historicist more than I am a leftist or a Marxist, and like the past isn't even past to quote Faulkner. Yeah, I mean, like maybe I'm because I'm a Southerner. This is like emblazoned in my head, but like it isn't. There, there, but it all simultaneously a foreign world. Um, even the recent past, even people who lived through the recent past. Mm-hmm often cannot put themselves back in the mindset that they were in or even fully remember it, mm-hmm. um, particularly now. I mean, when I, when I, I don't mean to like slam on boomers, but like when I hear boomers talk about the way things are right now, whether they be liberal or conservative, and I think, you lived through the 60s and 70s. Right. You just don't remember your own past. Right. And it's actually easier for me to remember because it's not my own past. I can't feel nostalgic about it. I just learn about it abstractly. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things Tarkovsky said in an interview with an Italian director, Rundi, um, about this uh, is that Russians, he thought Russians in particular had a nostalgia for when they were traveling for Russia for something that they missed, for something they can't have. Um, and But he says that this very nostalgia creates in them a sorrow that leads to compassion and understanding for other for other peoples and other sadnesses that they wouldn't have had otherwise. Mm-hmm. And it becomes a kind of negative capacity. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I think there's a lot of truth to that. When I... I, um, I find, for example, that while I think Americans are fundamentally weird... Um, like, uh, I think they're fundamentally weird because of a lot of denial about how not different they are. Mm. Um, and when they talk about other places, when I hear American liberals talk about other places, for example, they, they, they tend to like think that everyone is, you know, progressive and, and, uh, um, and you know it's basically all Canada, and I'm like, Canada's not even Canada. <laughs> um, and I say this because I I think I also find though that I never have the animosity that I see some people have towards Americans, even when I even when I'm frustrated. You know, you could ask my partner, and she'll listen to me rant about maybe I should just leave, like like um, <laughs> like. These people have gotten too strange for me, um, and then and then I remind myself that like no, you know, one, you can't escape yourself anywhere. You're always bringing yourself with you, and two, um, that I remember the the kind of frustration I would feel at anyone essentializing Americans because one, we're not a unified culture like at all. Like I'm living in. I live in Utah, and sometimes, like, sometimes this is just as foreign language, uh, foreign place as Egypt was. It's happened to speak my language and share my media. Yeah. Um, and uh, and two, um, I feel that way about everywhere. Like, I don't like essentializing 
any place after having experienced it. Egyptians can essentialize. Koreans can essentialize. I mean, like, even though there are definite cultural trends, some of which are unpleasant, some of which are pleasant, um, some of which can be damaging to people, some of which can be profoundly, you know, enriching, but, like, people are still pretty diverse. Yeah. Um, even within uh, a, a limited milieu, I, I often wonder... Um, if people are, are open up to the third thingness of of a lot of this, um, you know, one one thing I'll say is when you hang out around expatriates and, and immigrants a lot, um, you realize uh, uh, there is a sometimes a shutting away of the outside influence. Like I've known a lot of people who traveled abroad and they didn't become like you know, more liberal, progressive people, they became chauvinistic. Mm. Um, um, but when you really miss home, um, and for most people, home is not a country, home is a place, um, and you try to understand someone else's home, I think it, it does change everything. You have a lot more compassion for people, and you have a lot more understanding about why human difference is the way it is. Yeah. Um, yeah, I, I have to say my, if I've said many times on this podcast that I think my sort of, I have almost a pathological um, sense of hospitality. Uh, and, and I think that it's partially because I've always felt like a displaced person. Like I've never felt quite like I belonged where I happened to be living. Even Cleveland, I talk about Cleveland all the time. I was the son of hillbilly immigrants to Cleveland, right? So I was never mm -hmm. really a Clevelander even. even so you're Jack a, Vance. Um, <laughs> well, I would like to think of a slightly <laughs> slightly less obnoxious version of him. <laughs> but, well, yeah. But, but also, like, I remember reading Hillbilly Elegy and going, you're describing a lot of stuff I know. Yeah. But you aren't a hillbilly. Yeah. <laughs> I had the you same. Ohio. It's a very <laughs> similar background. Yes. Uh, that book, I read it. And while I disagreed with all of his conclusions, the description of the world um, was very close to what I, I experienced. Right. Um, but yeah. And so I feel like my takeaway from that experience is always being so like from somebody else when i lived in the south everybody thought i was jewish like i mean because of i don't know of the way i present or something um and i had to <laughs> it was just almost comical by the end um and then um, see, uh, see as a jew everyone thought i was secretly half black <laughs> interesting <laughs> interesting and um, um well but and so here like i mean i happen to work at a place where hospitality is one of our four core values, right? And it's sort of a perfect fit for me because I do feel like um, making a, a space welcoming um, to people from other places and from other um, experiences is um, something that I wish I experienced more of, I suppose, in my life, both in church and outside of church. And, uh, and, and I feel like um, I, that's probably why this movie speaks to me. Um, this whole one plus one equals one um, is, uh, is very appealing to me on some level. And the more we talk about it, the more that uh, I come to appreciate it. Yeah, I, I would say, I guess maybe this is where you will see, you will hear me sound like almost a reactionary traditionalist, but like, when I've lived in poorer parts of the world, um, and particularly traveled into the poorest parts of those poorer parts of the world, like I go down into, into Aswan, or, um, uh, or when I went down in Oaxaca, you know, a lot of people didn't have time for my 
gringo bullshit. But <laughs> um, uh, sorry about that swearing. I don't really know anyone wants to explain that. Um, <laughs> One hour twenty six minutes. There we go. All right, uh, some editing in Anderson's future. Go ahead. <laughs> you got one bleep. I'm being good this time. Um, but uh, it it was um. Um, it was also amazing how, how much hospitality I received in, in those areas from people who hadn't much less than me. And it did change my perspective. I, I did sort of like get why people become sort of romantic about particularly rural pre-modern poverty. Mm. Actually, you know, like when you see it up against the modern world, there's absolutely nothing romantic about it. And, and modern, like urban poverty is brutal pretty much everywhere. But it's it was something that I understood. It's still a crushing, you know, it, it is heartbreaking to go out to places where like not only they don't have electricity, like you're literally investing money so that people can build a brick oven with a flume so that kids don't die of cancer from from basic like fire smoke yeah um but it's it's uh like people will give you food like it, it was yeah. it, it, it you that like that blew my mind when i um when i lived in egypt um you know americans are not the most popular people in the world in egypt not going to lie um but People, uh, particularly, frankly, lower and, and middle-class Egyptians, um, were so kind to me. Mm. And it was based off of this hospitality thing. Um, and I do think that's something... Now, I'm a Southerner, and supposedly we have the hospitality. I don't really believe it anymore. I think we're just as much of a jerks as all the other Americans at this point. But... Um, that hospitality culture is something that I wish Americans did more of. And hospitality culture is not always, like, polite. It's not always friendly. No. Um, some people will give you food um, and um, and be super kind to you. And they're also, like, complain about your gringo BS mm -hmm. um, to your face. Mm -hmm. um, so, like, um, you know, and they might rant with you, but... You know, I knew people in Egypt who survived because of hospitality as the political winds turned. Um, uh, because, you know, who knew? A foreigner had no idea who to decide within a given point. And, and the, you know, the hospitality rules really helped you. I knew people who, who uh, it did a lot for me when, you know, my ex-wife had cancer based off of hospitality stuff. And, and that... That is something I also think is from experience, people who experience multiple cultures in a very old way get, and people who are shut off from the world are. And hegemons, ironically, even though they're where all the immigrants go, um, are often shut off from the world mm. because everyone already speaks your language. You don't know it, but they do. I always laugh when people are like, how do you travel if you don't speak the language? I'm like, Almost everyone in the world speaks English. <laughs> we make them because yeah. we don't speak their language. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, like, no, not every, but I mean, like, seriously, like, more people do than you know, at least enough to, like, 
basically communicate. Um, and yes, when you go to a country, you should try to speak the language, but like, it, but that's also why you're shut off, because everyone speaks language. Our country is huge, because um, it's an empire, and um, empires are huge, and you can travel forever and not, but most Americans don't. They live very provincial lives, and um, that's that's actually historically true of hegemons. Mm -hmm. So, so it's I think you know, and Russia thought it was a hegemon, was a hegemon for a while, isn't anymore, wasn't in the time period Tarkovsky's writing about, and I think Tarkovsky thinks it's good for the Russian character that they're not. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, as you're talking, it reminds me, and I'll like, I won't ever, seems like every episode lately, I'll throw in Matthew Arnold, but uh, that was one of his complaints about British culture was that it was sort of self enclosed and he was all, all about engaging with Europe, right? And, and, and importing ideas from Germany and France. And, and, um, and, uh, and so, yeah, he was very much uh, against that kind of stale, uh, you know, self in, inward looking culture that he saw in England at the time in, in the mid 1800s. And so, um, well, Derek, um, this has been awesome as always. It's always great to talk to you. Um, I, I know you're Even busy. Even though maybe like two thirds of the podcast was only actually about the movie. Uh. <laughs> well, but I think it, the movie opens up a really interesting um, conversation. Um, and honestly, I didn't expect it to go there. I knew that that one plus one equals one thing appealed to me for some reason. Um, and talking through it with you, I think mean, got me to kind of a, an understanding of the movie, or at least a reading of it that I find very meaningful. And, and it is applicable to uh, the world we live in and, and many of its issues, I think. And so I think that it's a, uh, um, um, it's a good thing to think about. I have no problem going off script a little bit for that reason. So yeah, I, I would tell people pick it up, watch it, mainline it. I would almost dare them to watch it a second time without subtitles, mm. even if they don't speak Italian, because I because I think one of the weird things about this movie not being plot driven is um, you can absorb a lot of it by the images. Yeah. Um, not all of it. You do need to, you know, you do need to get with some of the language of it. And yes, you're going to need probably subtitles unless you speak fluent Italian. And also, probably helps to speak fluent Italian and decent Russian. Um, but uh, I, 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 I think I would tell people watch it once with subtitles. You know, get it. Then watch it. I, I challenge you to sit through it in the original language, in the Italian, in the Russian, and Try to experience it that way. I think you'll. I, I think you'll get something out of it, even though that seems strange. Yeah, and and it is. It's a. I mean, a Tarkovsky movie. The ones that I've seen are kind of like um, paintings that move. I mean, there's a there's a a value in just looking at the images move on screen. Um, and uh, and there's a, a yeah. And this one has a poetry to the language too. And so, um, thank you, Derek. I, I know you're a busy person, and I know you have a lot going on. Um, but I just want to make sure that you know that you're welcome to come back at any point to talk about anything you want. Uh, it's always uh, it's always great to talk to you. Um, those of you, well, we're supposed to talk about Marshall Arnold sometime. We're supposed to talk about something have, else sometime. We have a huge list of things. Yeah, I wanted to read through Culture and Anarchy with you, but I, I know you're busy. You're working on a book about Christopher Lash. I'm working on yeah, yeah, I am. And uh, you've got a million things going on, and I don't want to like uh, impose on your time, but I want to make sure that uh, you come back periodically and uh, and uh, and and share your culture with my audience, and uh, and we all mm -hmm. grow from that. We're the uh, the right side of that equal sign after talking to you. So uh, for C. Derek Varn, my name is Danny Anderson. Thanking you for listening to another episode of the Sectarian Review Podcast. Mm -hmm.